Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders here. This morning, we continue our study of the book of Hebrews. You could turn with me, please, to verse 11 of chapter 5. If you have one of the church Bibles, we are on page 943. 943. We live in an exceptionally transient community. And so we've grown used to seeing people come and go. In fact, some of you here today are brand new to us, or you're just visiting our community, and we're thrilled to have you here. And there are a number of others that we recently sent out on account of graduation or relocation for one reason or another. But there is a tragic reality that might get swallowed up amid all the comings and goings of our church and our community. In just the last three years or so, we have had two members leave us not because of relocating their home, but because of denying the faith they once professed. This is not pleasant, especially for those of you in close relationships with those who have denied Christ. But it is something we cannot be naive about. Not everyone who professes to follow Christ will follow him to the end. For some, when the going gets tough, it's just too tough. For others, personal desires take over and become all-consuming. For yet others... The world's deceptions loom large, and the Bible's truth fades into disuse. So what do we do with this? Our text this morning is perhaps one of the scariest in the New Testament. And for that reason, it's, it's among one of the most debated. There are some details in here that are somewhat obscure. But the primary message is quite straightforward. And that is that saving faith is a patient but maturing faith. Saving faith is a patient but maturing faith. This means that if your faith is lazy or sluggish, you could be on a path toward spiritual tragedy. We'll follow the argument of our text in four steps that you can see on your outline Some are immature, but let's all become mature. 
Because immaturity leads to destruction, but maturity leads to salvation. The warnings in this text are not the sort of thing to be taken lightly. So let's ask God to help us grapple honestly with what we find here. That we might press on to maturity together. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we are sobered by the reality that not all who profess to follow Christ will follow him to the end. And Lord, this text that we're about to consider is one that for some of us, it can shake up what we have believed. It can, it can cause us to wrestle with our theology. And Lord, help us now not to allow that from making us grapple seriously with what we find here. Lord, this is your word to us this morning. May we hear what the Spirit has recorded for the sake of your church. Strengthen us that we might look to Christ and to no one else and nothing else, especially not ourselves, as our hope for the future. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in chapter 5 of Hebrews, what we studied last week, the author has just begun to explore the high priesthood of Jesus, and he wants to explain some of the remarkable things that Jesus has done as high priest. But there's something else slowing him down and preventing him from doing that. Verse 11 of chapter 5. About this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The main idea of this paragraph is stated clearly in verse 11. You have become dull of hearing. This word dull is an important one. He repeats that word at the end of our text in chapter 6 verse 12. Where he will say that the ultimate goal of this entire passage is that you may not be sluggish. Dull and sluggish are two English representations of the same Greek word in the original text. 
The point is that these people are immature in their faith, but they shouldn't stay that way. He wants them to grow out of it. You can call it dull. You can call it sluggish. Like the Israelites of old, they have heard the message, but they are in danger of not obeying it or holding on to it. Part of that looks like they don't know what to do with the Bible. Verse 13 here says that they are unskilled in the word of righteousness. Now the CSB translation uses the word lazy instead of either dull or sluggish. You have become lazy, verse 11 of chapter 5, and I don't want you to be lazy, verse 12 of chapter 6. This is crucial. To have a lazy faith means wanting things to stay as they are. This is where I'm happy where I am and I don't think I need to grow any further. I presume that God's grace to me means I don't actually have to do anything as a Christian. This is lazy faith. In verse 12, he says they ought to be teachers by now. But they haven't moved beyond the basic principles of God's word. And in verse 14, the author wants to feed them solid spiritual food. But that is something that only the mature can eat. They're still suckling on spiritual milk like little children and they like it that way they want it to stay that way now one challenge of studying this passage is that it reminds us that whenever we read the bible we are reading someone else's mail it can be very tempting as christians today to see the word you And to think it refers to those of us who are in this room today. But we have to remember that though the Bible was written for us, it was not written to us. This passage is one such place where we ought to be reminded of that fact. You see, when the book of Hebrews was written, the author saw fit to label the entire audience as a general rule in verse 11, as lazy and immature in their faith. I'm sure that there were some individuals numbered among them for whom that was not the case. We know that because at the end of chapter 10, he'll address those folks directly with lots of encouragement and praise for their faith. But the community as a whole was not where it should have been with respect to spiritual maturity. Now, I would characterize our community at Grace Fellowship Church somewhat differently, and here's why this matters. You see, if we're not careful, the wrong people in this room will receive the wrong message from this text. There are many of you, members of this church, who are mature, faithful, And effective at making disciples of Jesus Christ. 
And you are the folks who are most likely to hear this text say, you are lazy. And there are perhaps a few of you who are immature, lazy, and sluggish in your obedience to Christ. And perhaps you are the folks who are most likely to hear this text say, you ought to be commended for your faith. Jesus loves you. It's so easy to get this backwards. And often the mature are those who see how much farther they have to go. And the immature are those who think they're doing just fine and they want it to stay just as it is. So here is my challenge to you. The fact is that in any and every Christian community, any gathering of people who come together to worship the Lord Jesus, there will be some who are immature because they're brand new to the faith and that's as it should be. That's okay. That's not who this text is addressing. But there will also be those who are immature who really ought to be leaders and teachers by now. So if you truly wish to grow up and be mature in Christ, if you wish to avoid spiritual tragedy, I dare you to ask your shepherding elder, or if you're just visiting with us, ask an elder of your church, do you think I've been lazy in my faith? And elders... I dare you to ask this question of one another. If you are afraid to ask that question, that is likely a sign that you are not where you ought to be and you may be in grave danger. Do not grow fond of lazy faith. Persistent immaturity is not to be commended among those who trust in Christ. So if you do go ahead and ask that question of your shepherding elder, do you think I've been lazy in my faith? Please brace yourself for the answer. But recognize that you are engaging in a process outlined in verse 14. A process to have your powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern, to distinguish good from evil. So the reality is that some are immature. This is a fact in any Christian community. And we'll see soon that a perpetually immature faith is not the sort of faith that saves. But what do we do with our immaturity? Maybe you identify some lazy faith. That does not yet mean that the jig is up or that the game is over. The author of Hebrews is not ready to give up just because his people are spiritually immature, and neither am I. Because saving faith is a maturing and a patient faith. So notice next how he wants them all to respond. Point number two, let's all become mature. This is in verses one to three of chapter six. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, 
the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now the main idea of this paragraph is found in verse 1. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. See, now that he's identified the problem of immaturity in the previous paragraph, he wants his people to grow out of it and become mature. But what does that mean? Well, he he goes over a, a brief list here of what he calls elementary doctrines. In verse 12 of chapter 5, right before this, he called these the basic principles of the oracles of God. Here he lists a few of those basic principles, but he doesn't explain them. That's because he doesn't want to lay this foundation again. He doesn't want to keep going over and over these things. He wants the people to grow up. But we... we should see what he's talking about here. Verse 1, he mentions the doctrines of repentance and faith. In verse 2, he mentions the doctrines of washings and the laying on of hands. And at the end of verse 2, he mentions the doctrines of the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. Now, the really interesting thing about these doctrines is that they were all Jewish teachings. They provided crucial foundations for the Christian faith. You can't understand Christianity without this Jewish foundation of these concepts. New converts to Christianity had to learn these things in order to understand what Christianity is about. Let me just give you one example with washings and the laying on of hands. These were ceremonial rituals performed on animal sacrifices at the Jewish temple where the offering had to be washed pure and clean and then through the laying on of hands the sins of the worshiper would be transferred to the offering as a substitute before God. You can't understand Christianity without grasping these fundamentally Jewish concepts of purity and substitution. But the crazy thing is that you could understand every one of these six elementary doctrines he lays out here and still not be a Christian. You can grasp those teachings and and still not be trusting or obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like riding a bicycle with training wheels. The training wheels help you to acquire the desired skill. But if you don't ever become a mature cyclist without the training wheels, then you can't say you're a true cyclist. So these people do not need to put the training wheels back on, relearning all of these fundamental or elementary doctrines of the Messiah. Saving faith is not a lazy faith. It's a maturing faith. What they need is maturity. And what he means by that is that they need Jesus. That's what he wants to show them in the next few chapters. So he gives them strong motivation in the next paragraph to help them press on to maturity. Here's point number three. Immaturity leads to destruction. Verses four through eight. For it is impossible, 
In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted in the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. The first thing he does in verses 4 through 6 is describe the problem of immaturity in sobering language. And then he illustrates the results of immaturity with the metaphor of the land in verses 7 and 8. Let let me walk through this. First, the description of the problem in 4 through 6. There are some people who ride on the training wheels and they experience the blessings of having done so, verses 4 and 5, but they later come to ridicule the whole endeavor. That's what the second half of verse 6 is saying, that they've come to ridicule this whole thing. He talks about people who, verse 4, they were enlightened, they've tasted the heavenly gift, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, presumably they've, they've experienced some of the gifts as they participate in the community. Verse 5, they've tasted the goodness of God's word, they've been impacted by it, they've tasted the power of the world to come, but verse 6, they then have fallen away. Now, scholars vigorously debate these verses. This is the most contentious part of the passage. The chief question is this. Who are these people that he's talking about? Is this author describing people who were true Christians and then turned away? Or is he describing people who only looked like Christians but never actually knew the Lord Jesus? And I raise that question to let you know it's a major question people ask here. And it ends up with the the final impact of this question is, is it possible for a true believer to lose their salvation? That's the question of this text. And I concede the fact that that is the, 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 the main thing people talk about in this passage. And I have an opinion on the answer to that question. However, I honestly think that the question could distract us from the message that the author is trying to communicate. Because his point is simply and clearly that whoever these people are, whether they were true Christians or not, whoever they are, they now ridicule the faith they once professed. When he says in verse 6 that they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and they hold him up to contempt, he is saying that these people used to shout, Hosanna, which means save us, Christ. But now they shout, crucify him, 
as did the fickle Passover crowds in Jerusalem. They have placed these people, they have placed themselves in the position of Annas and Caiaphas, those contemptible high priests who had Jesus arrested and handed over to be crucified. And because these former followers, those who profess to follow him, they are now publicly shaming him. They are trying to crucify him again and to mock him and ridicule him. It is impossible to restore them to repentance. I don't think that means that they are forever damned to hell no matter what. It just means that they'll never choose to worship the person that they have chosen to hold up to public contempt. Just picture any of the many folks in our day who have marketed themselves as deconstructing Christianity or as the cool term now is, ex-evangelicals. The biblical term for them is apostates. The people who tell stories of the churches they once attended, they, they speak about the things they once were taught or that they taught themselves, but they believe that now they finally come to their senses and now they see Jesus as a buffoon and his followers as morons. How could you ever talk someone like that into exalting Jesus as the Son of God and the exact representation of the glory of God as the book of Hebrews describes him in chapter 1. You can't. I can't. All we can do is pray that God might do something supernatural like he did for Saul of Tarsus, the arch persecutor of the church of God. The main idea, though, here is that this really ought to motivate us to press on to maturity in our faith because there are many who do not press on to maturity. They once stood on the basic principles of the Messiah. They experienced the many real blessings of those truths and then they fell away from the truth and focused their scorn on the only one who could help them. And none of us has the power to help them, to restore them to repentance. From there, the author moves into an extended metaphor in verses 7 and 8. This metaphor is, is that a plot of land receives either blessing or cursing, depending on what sort of crop it produces after receiving the rain. Jesus himself told a few parables to this very same effect. He, he referred to himself as a farmer planting seeds. And, and he called himself the one sending showers of grace upon people. And he looks for them to bear fruit. If they turn to him in obedient faith, he blesses them and he enfolds them. But if they produce only thorns and thistles, they're living in slavery to sin along with the rest of humanity, then he disavows all knowledge of them. Depart from me. I never knew you. And make no mistake from verse 8. Those who will not bear the fruit of obedient faith will, in the end, be burned. That last word there, 
Again, Jesus himself spoke of a barn where the chaff would be collected and put into this barn and the whole thing would be burned up. The Apostle Paul spoke of the punishment of eternal destruction. That is what awaits those who will not hear Jesus, trust Jesus, hang on to Jesus, and obey him to the end. To be clear, your obedience does not make you his child, but your obedience is what demonstrates that you are his child. So brothers and sisters, there are some who never mature in relying on Jesus and they end up worse off than when they started having dabbled in this. And there are others who never bear fruit and are fit only for being burned. These realities ought to motivate you and me to press on to maturity. So let's not stay where we are. Saving faith is a maturing faith. So let's hold on to Jesus Christ. Let's grow beyond the fundamental concepts of our religion and come to see and to savor our Lord Jesus in the fullness of His glory. Maturity means coming to Him boldly so that we may receive from Him the mercy and the grace we require in our time of need. And let us give thanks to God for Jesus, our merciful and faithful high priest. The stakes are high. There is too much to lose. That's why the author has higher hopes for his people than being cursed and burned up in the end. This is our fourth point. Maturity leads to salvation, verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, dull, lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see, friends, the author has higher hopes for his people than being cursed and burned up in the end. In verse 9, he admits to using a very strong tone to get their attention, though we speak in this way. He's confident of better things for them. Salvation things. This is the salvation he spoke about in chapter 2. The salvation that Jesus spoke about and that the apostles testified to. The salvation that involves getting pulled along after Jesus, by Jesus, from this world and into the glory of the world to come. The new heaven and the new earth where everything is put to rights. That is the very salvation from which the immature will fall. These are high stakes. 
but he's confident of better things for his people for two reasons. The first reason is in verse 10. God sees your love and your good deeds. God sees. Do you you ever feel unnoticed or unseen? Some of you have been sick or aging. A few of our members can often join us only over Zoom. Do you feel unseen? Are there others of you who are physically present here today, but maybe emotionally distant, where you can see the need for maturing in your faith, for growing to trust Christ more deeply, for developing as a leader or as a teacher, but you just don't know what to do about it? Where do you go next? Well, you need to know that you don't have to do everything perfectly. If you do only something to press on, to serve the Lord Jesus, to love his people, it doesn't matter how minor or insignificant it might seem to you, God sees it. God knows about it. God will reward it. So Christian leaders can hold out much confidence for their people because we know that even though we can't see you empty the trash or speak a kind word to a hurting soul or give of your time or resources to help someone in need, we know that God sees it every time and he will not overlook what you have sought to do in his name. That's his first reason for confidence. God sees. God knows. His second reason for confidence is in verses 11 and 12. And the second reason is that full assurance of hope is possible even to the end. And we're like, what? After all those warnings you just gave us? Are you kidding me? But this is the stated goal of the author. Verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and have the full assurance of hope until the end. This is the goal of the elders in this church. We want you to be certain in your hope in Christ. We do not want you to be lazy or sluggish in your faith. And we don't want you to be out in the blue Out in the unknown. We want you to imitate, verse 12, those who inherit the promises of God. And those in history who have inherited what God promised them have always done so, as verse 12 says, through faith and patience. So you see, saving faith is a maturing faith. And saving faith is a patient faith. You can trust and trust and trust and trust and trust and trust and trust for a very long time. And it might still look on the outside like everything is going wrong and you're not getting what God promised. But those who persevere patiently, making constant progress toward maturity which means holding on to Jesus, they can have great 
earnestness and full assurance of hope. Now, our brother Ryan will preach further on this hope next week as he finishes chapter 6 in his sermon for us. But for today, let me summarize with three brief applications. Number one, do not grow fond of lazy faith. Do not grow fond of lazy faith. Don't presume that God's grace means that it does not matter how you live your life. It is not wise for you to stay in the same place in your Christian walk. And perhaps today is the day for you to ask help and to press on. Do not grow fond of lazy faith. Number two, do not dismiss the dire warning of this text. Do not dismiss the dire warning of this text. There are people who look like Christians and who talk like Christians who will no longer claim to be Christians on the last day when Jesus returns. And that could be anyone in this room. Don't pretend it can't happen. Do not dismiss the dire warning of this text. But finally, application number three. Hold on to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. That is the only way to have full assurance of hope until the end. And if you think this is about you and how great you have to be before God, you have missed the entire point. Maturing in faith does not mean becoming super smart or even becoming theologically astute. It means trusting more and more fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. The tighter your hold on Him, the closer you get to experiencing the salvation He bought for you. So in conclusion... Not everyone's faith will last. But saving faith is a patient and a maturing faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ who has shown us the way and has made salvation possible for all who will trust in him. Lord, no matter where we've been before today, no matter what we've done, no matter what's happened, we can start new. We can start fresh. Help us to hold on to Jesus that we might not dismiss the dire warnings of this text and help us, Lord, please never to grow fond of lazy faith, but to press on in seeking Jesus and embracing him and loving him. Jesus, you are our only hope. And so please strengthen our assurance as we hold on to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.